These are things where you have to sit down person by person, scenario by scenario, and make it work out. It's a human-centric practice. If you bring the humans in that you want to have those good moments and show them that they're having bad moments, it can be really powerful. Welcome back to Pod Rocket, a web development podcast from LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it free today at logrocket.com. I am Emily and I'm the producer for Pod Rocket. Today we're answering your questions about UI and UX design. Last month we asked you to send in what you were struggling with when it came to UI and UX design. So today we're taking the time to talk to our panel of experts to answer your questions. And before we get into answering those questions, let's welcome our panel. First, we have Stephanie Eccles returning to PodRocket. She's a front-end software engineer, author of Modern CSS, Small CSS, Eleventy Rocks. She's also an instructor, Twitch streamer, conference speaker, and more. Welcome back, Stephanie. Thanks so much for having me. Next, we have Adam Argyle joining us again as well. Adam is the CSS and UI DevRel at Google Chrome and the CSS Working Group. He also hosts the GUI Challenges and the CSS Podcast and is the creator of VizBug and Open Props. Glad to have you back on, Adam. Thanks so much. Stoked to be here. Hell yeah. And finally, rounding out our guest panelists, we have Stacey Cavernmo. UX designer and front-end developer at Oddbird, who has been working in front-end for about 20 years. She's a conference speaker and meetup speaker and is passionate about making UX a priority. Welcome to the show, Stacey. I am delighted to be here, but I'm sort of feeling pretty old right now. (laughs) It's a lot of experience, and that's why we're glad you're here. And then finally, we have our PodRocket host returning, Noel Minchow, lead software engineer here at LogRocket. Welcome back as always, Noel. Thanks, Emily. Awesome. All right. So let's get right into the questions. Richard wrote in and said, when it comes to UI UX, I'm fairly decent at the UX side, meaning I can empathize with the user and make decisions, but I really struggle with the UI. With every new project, I feel like I have to completely reinvent the wheel or risk looking like yet another insert UI toolkit site. So I end up spending forever choosing bespoke fonts, colors, button styles, hover effects, etc. In the end, I'm still not entirely confident that I made the right choices. So my question is, when building a UI from scratch, how do you decide which areas to be creative versus sticking with tried and true layouts? I always look at it as a balance, and it also depends on budget. There's nothing mentioned about budget here. So depending on how much time you have, you can explore even further But let's say you've done all the research that you're going to do to find out all the vibes of the project you're going after. I think that design doesn't always call for being like overly creative in everything and sticking to some of the tried and true layout methods actually is a great idea. And then you can weave some of those little creative explorations in smaller ways. You can look at maybe how one group of inner components work before you even approach like an entire page. And if you are starting from complete scratch, you don't have anything with the brand assets or colors or anything, then I like to start with type and just see what can I do to make that type look special before I even get it into any sort of designed canvas and I'll compare different typefaces and whatnot. 
But I think there's a lot you can do without thinking about how you apply it everywhere or turning text sideways or what can you do to make any little piece creative and then that won't necessarily break your budget and i think you'll find out quickly if it works or not so you can go on to the next idea if it's not working i'll just tag on from a different angle so just a little something about me is i would definitely not classify myself as a designer i am firmly in a front-end engineer camp (laughs) but with different side projects and just the flow of my career, I've ended up doing user experience design and especially with the accessibility considerations. So from that angle, I would encourage you to consider that some of those tried and true, those are going to lend you that user experience and getting that solid foundation, regardless of what you're building, is always going to be beneficial for your process. And then as Stacy said, adding in those sprinkles of whimsy or what have you, after that point, maybe makes the experience a little less daunting when you're first starting out and starting at that blank page, like nail the user experience and then layer on top of that would be my advice. Solid advice coming from the panel so far. I'm going to build upon it, but I'm going to start with kind of a joke. So we have April Fool's coming up and I was thinking it'd be really funny to make the most beautiful site that you just land at loads. You're like 2023 design galore. (laughs) It's just beautiful and then you hover over a button and the button wobbles away from you and then you try to scroll and when you scroll all the text on the screen flickers around and it's so overpacked with beautiful ui that the ux is absolutely terrible so my goal would be and i probably will build this one day is the most beautiful unusable site you've ever seen before just because there's a tension here the tension that's clear is that just beautiful ui does not give you good ux just good ux does not lead to beautiful ui there's somehow a harmony here and that is frustrating and i feel like this question is articulating the difficulty of balance between like you get started you build something it's functional it feels like the user experience is there and then you go layer on beauty or balance and spacing and padding and color and so then that changes the way something felt and so you're on a teeter-totter And I think for me, I started out as a front-end developer building other designers' dreams, right? I made their dreams come true. But then I went to design school, learned design while I was still coding. And so then I got this like dual brain way to look at everything. And I'd say that my approach to things, and this is kind of manifested in my current website. I just redid it for the first time in like six years or something. Oh, wait, by the way, Stacey, I've been doing this stuff for 20 years and stuff too. So it's all good. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, my site, it's not doing anything really that exciting. You talk about these tried and true patterns, just like Stacy and Stephanie are saying, like these are stable. These are things the user is going to land there and feel familiar. So if you work for a company and you have a design system, your design system would be found within it. So there's ways to be inclusive of the ethos and heart and soul of what it is you're building as like a product and marrying that with something that's highly functional and has great user experience and then adding in the UI of beauty on top. And I tend to always work that way. I work very functional, accessible. I make sure that something is solid in terms of a foundation before I go building a house on it. Yeah, I will say, I think it is a scale and I think we worked into that nicely. I find that where I usually land on the scale is I look at how much time I know I'm going to have to dedicate to a thing. And I make sure that the function is there first, like if I know I'm gonna have limited time. And if I know it's something I'll be able to maintain and will be able to like pour some love into it, I'm a little bit more willing to go in and sprinkle some magic or whatever the term we used was on it. But my fear is always like starting to do that and then half-assing it because I don't have enough time and like to build a nice UI, it is a large, it's a large amount of work. So I always err on the side of like, make sure the thing 
works well enough. And then if I've got time, start to go in and add the magic. So I think, Adam, you said it's all about balance, right? And we actually did get another question from Renee and they asked, how can they balance creating a site that isn't too fancy or too boring while maintaining a natural user experience? So maybe we can get into the more nitty gritty of what does that actually look like when any of you are developing a site? How do you make sure that it's still like a beautiful looking site while it doesn't get lost in like Adam, you're saying things floating around everywhere and you can't even click anything? The way that I work, I have a, like what you mentioned in the beginning, it's called Open Props. It has a lot of my base layer design thoughts in there. So my inputs aren't as boring as the regular inputs. My buttons aren't as boring as regular buttons, but they aren't extravagant. And then I also only provide a couple of surface colors and a couple of text colors, and they are adaptive to light and dark. And so when I start a new project, it's not exciting, but it's certainly not boring. And I like iterating in this space. This space gives me something that I don't have to rework a lot to make change. I get to rework something. I get to work very structurally. I get to work on this foundation or maybe the two by fours of the home. But those two by fours that I'm grabbing, they come with a decent amount of beauty innately in them. And so as long as I'm using field sets and creating harmonious relationships and orchestrating UI components right, these things can all flow together and look natural together, at which point I'll come back to them later and iterate on the design and then iterate again. Because that's the other thing is like UX, it's very subjective, but it's not as subjective as like exciting colors and stuff. And so that's the other part of this. It's hard is you might be iterating in your design. You might be, a, I don't know, I've never seen this person's work, but I could imagine two different types of this person. And one of them could be phenomenal. Their UI is just killer. And they're the type of designer that's just never happy with what they make. You stare at something too long and it always gets ugly in a way. And so it can be nice to show it to someone else and be like, it looks great. And you're like, cool, I'm just going to cool my jets then at home and focus on something else because I've really done that button too many times. All in all, I find that a foundation of just a couple of colors and some good spacing and some good layout can really get you super far in terms of UI beauty. Because remember being minimal is also a lot of the difficulty of having a well-balanced good-looking design is there's space around it. it's not all condensed and doesn't look like the tools it looks like you disguised it uh, so try to find a healthy foundational starting place that's what i would say here adam mentions spacing and again just from my own viewpoint <laughs> typically not a designer i was thinking about how a combo of this question in the previous one where maybe just like a little hesitant to use a ui kit and i can understand that but to Adam's point, having something that gives you that solid foundation and then you bring in these other stylistic choices. So my history, I grew up with Bootstrap, right? Every site I was in, the every site was Bootstrap. And Bootstrap's a phenomenal UI kit. Like the bare bones foundational building blocks are phenomenal, but you can make a very, of course, not attractive site with Bootstrap, usually because your key elements are spacing and typography. I think we're all going to end up saying that a whole lot. And so spending time maybe on those areas or just identifying for yourself, what areas do you feel you know least about when it comes to user experience and design? For myself, I at least started having to learn Figma last week. <laughs> so I was watching Figma tutorials and I hadn't really considered that for myself as an avenue of learning more about design, listen to more designers. Like it sounds sort of obvious, but when you're maybe working more siloed or you don't have ready access to mentors who can help guide you to some of those resources, that's where I've usually felt trapped in my design is kind of not knowing where to go. And so I just basically am encouraging you to reach out, find more resources, maybe look a little beyond your usual bubble, 
Twitch streamers would be another thing that I randomly found over the pandemic. Just looking outside for sources of inspiration, seeing what little tips and tricks you can start incorporating into your work, and then that will help you build those layers. To add to that, I think inspiration is so important when you're talking about the difference between making a boring site and one that's too fancy, I think was the word in the question. And what I like to do is as a user of the web, I will take a screenshot anytime I see a post date that looks a little extra special. And I was like, what is going on here? Like this is capturing my attention. I take a pretty closely zoomed up picture screenshot of just that little piece, maybe the author name and title, but not like necessarily the entire page. So I have this huge library here of inspiration of just little snippets of things that I found interesting that made what might have been a boring blog site, a very little nice page to look at. So after collecting all of these little pieces for years now, I'll open that up before I do a new design, just kind of browse like, oh, what's here? And it's not stealing because I don't have that exact screenshot up while I'm designing in the canvas. I just look around and it's like, what was memorable to me? If I zoom through and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember how this site had amazing footnotes, for instance. And then I look at my canvas and I'm like, what can I do for this brand? And how can I meet these goals that will bring this little piece? I always like having a place you can go to, to get that inspiration because a lot of websites are kind of just ugly. So if you do find one of those special ones, I think to save it and you know refer back to it later or from time to time, it kind of inspires you to do something creative on your own work. One of you talked about iterations and I know Stephanie or just like talk to other designers, watch other designers, Stacey talking about taking screenshots and stuff. Like one of our <laughs> listeners asked, one of the biggest traps I fall into is falling in love with the first iteration of a design that I'm involved with. Are there ways to avoid this inclination both personally and when working with others? I think having awareness that that's a thing that you may tend to find yourself in that situation is the first step. So that's great. I also think if you have the opportunity to present the design yourself, and if you can present it in a way that explains every design decision that you made and how it meets the goals of the project set out in the brief or whatnot, then you might have a better chance of convincing other people to love it as much as you do. But if you go into these meetings and say, do you like it? And you're asking for approval, they may look at it in a different way. She's asking if I like it or if I don't like it instead of, do you think that this component here communicates what you want to your audience? at this point in time or whatnot. I think if you are the one that guides someone through your design decisions, maybe you can more easily get them to be on your team with whatever you present. I was just thinking how I definitely fell into this trap a lot for the first good half or more of my career. One of the things that helped me break out of that is just having the different constraints, whether that was external or intrinsic to what I was building. Sometimes necessity is why you might need to go with that first design, right? But that's not necessarily always a bad thing. You're still getting experience from that. You're learning how to put design together and you can take those skills to your next one. And then you'll start to develop that I that designers talk about. You'll know the next time around when you're building something really similar, you might start to 
identify those areas. Like Stacey was talking about, maybe you can notice this little thing could be a little more special. And then you start to just build your general repertoire of what you can pull from, whether it's stuff you've seen, sources of inspiration, and then you can come back to your design later and have something more readily in mind of what needs to be tweaked. But definitely getting feedback if you're able to. I know that is not always possible, again, if you're solo or aren't necessarily in a team environment. We tend to think that everybody has a team with them, but of course, that's not always true. But even just asking a neighbor, someone else in your household, <laughs> especially for a quick gut check on usability, and that can help you determine if your design's overall effectiveness as well. I'm slightly baffled by the question because I I tend to hate V1. I mean, V1, I don't like hate it. V1 for me serves a purpose, which is first pass. I'm going to make a sweeping generalization. It's also kind of a joke. So just so you know, it's like the only time I see this, like where V1 is the best version of something is bands, their first albums. It's like the only time it's like the first album was, you know, awesome. And then they made a second one. You're like, ew, what'd you do? You know, but like with tools or building apps, I like to think of it a lot more like in a real world, would you like to drive the first version of my car? Everyone's going to be like, maybe, <laughs> probably not, dude. That's because the first version of my car is going to be the first version. We all know the first version is massively covered in mistakes and learning opportunities. At least this is how I generally look at them. So maybe I look at a lot of the stuff I build with like a growth mindset, probably sprinkled with a little bit of like the design could be better, which it always could. So I have to balance that. But I love V2. And then I always love V3 even more because V3 to me feels like, the one that is what V1 should have been. So yeah, this can come down to timelines and stuff like that. Like you don't always get the convenience of making it most of the time. Like you're always shipping V1, which to me is an annoying thing of the software industry. I'm like, why are we shipping V1 everywhere? I don't want to use your V1 vacuum. Like it's probably faulty in some way, but we constantly ship our V1. And I like to look at it as a stepping stone instead of something to cherish. And maybe this is from going to design school too, where critiques are gnarly. You show... A, a version of something to somebody and the more confident you stand there and go, this is the one, this is the final version. I'm so stoked on this. And everyone's going to show with me like, yeah, what you missed that and that and that. And you're going to sit there and it's going to like make it more crushing than if you had gone into it in sort of a growth mindset and been like, oh no, view, hey, my V1 is all right. I'm solid start, you know, or whatever. And then as you get the feedback, all you can think about then is like, how do I make it better? As, as opposed to, so you're not going to defend it. I have a feeling that you might be blocking or defending your designs out of like a, a personal preference thing. And I love putting my designs in front of, like Stephanie's saying, in front of everyone. Put it on someone else's phone. Open it up at someone else's computer. Like that's all it usually takes. You're like, oh yeah, can I see it on your PC over here? And you open it up, you're like, oh, <laughs> there's three mistakes I need to fix right now. So, so to me, I'm like constantly in this state of change and rarely label something V1. It's tricky. I understand being tied to things. Like it looks pretty good. It's it's a uh, like ripping a band-aid off to go in and like start tearing stuff apart and trying to get to V2. But I feel like if you're the kind of person that gets stuck in that rut, just being aware of it. And it sounds like the asker is aware of that, like their tendency to stick with what they've got. So yeah, just keep it in mind. And don't be afraid to experiment. If this is coming from a point of view of someone who's actually doing design in a design program, like your design is never really gonna look like the way you designed it in the design canvas because there's so much that changes once you get it into a more responsive and interactive environment. I mean, the tools for design are getting better. 
but there's still not that sense of scale and relative units and all the different states of interaction that you can actually do on the website. So if that helps you get over the fact that like this first version of the design isn't perfect, it's never going to look the exact same. So taking all of the feedback in and then applying that, maybe you can start thinking about it that way instead of just being personally crushed, just realizing that this is part of the project and part of the process and then it will grow and iterate over time. Pivoting a little bit, we're going to go into a little trending topic. Johan asked, will AI ever be able to do to UX and UI what has done to art and text generation? And if so, how far away is it? I think it will, but with the caveat that I think that what AI has done to art and text generation is not that interesting, really, in in terms of like deliverable products. So that's to say that like, I don't feel like right now our large generative models are not going to spit out like a Steinbeck or a Van Gogh anytime soon. I think we'll kind of see that same pattern with UI UX designs. Like, oh, here's like a template, but it'll look like another any other template. I think that the human element of all of these endeavors is still pretty key, especially for something that like really speaks to somebody or like, oh, this really fits the space and captures the emotion that I'm feeling around this thing. So I feel like there's like the larger philosophical argument we could get into here. But I think there's a you know, possibility we'll have tools that will aid designers and front-end engineers and stuff, just like we're seeing across the board right now. But I don't think it'll be any more displacing on delivering final product. Similarly, we got another AI question. MD Abdul asked that with the rise of AI and machine learning, it's becoming increasingly possible to tailor experiences based on user behavior and preferences. How can we leverage these technologies to create more meaningful interactions with our users? The camera didn't replace the photographer. GeoCities didn't replace the web developer. Neither did Wix. Figma didn't replace the designer. Prompt engineers aren't going to replace front-end engineers. Like a lot of the stuff that gets generated right now, it reminds me of the waterfall process versus agile. You ask for something, the thing disappears for a while and then drops it on your plate. And it's impressive when it drops it on your plate. But then as you inherit this beast and start to uncover the inner workings, you might find it takes you twice as long to tweak it and tweeze it to be what you finally want than to just have started with something from scratch. And so I think just like how I like to think about the housing is in a similar thing where like we have all these machines, all these tools that can build houses. And what we've seen is that sure, some houses are being stamped out by factories. Uh, they work fine for people. It's almost like getting a website built by Wix. But at the other side of this thing, we all know that a home can have many intimate moments of like design and architecture and joy. I love humans. I just think people are amazing. We're phenomenally unique and unpredictable. And AI is going to be the opposite of that forever. It's all it can be is it can, I mean, I guess it can play games better than some of the chess people. But at, at the same time, all these tools and all these attempts to like, there's been page builders forever, like the two years or something after the first website was ever made, there was a no code tool. That was over 20 years ago. Do you still see coders? Of course you do. This stuff seems like very capable, but at the same time, I, I we're not going to see swaths of engineers not get jobs. If anything, we're going to see new types of jobs. We're going to see people continuing to maintain systems as well as, and people are going to be maintaining AI created systems. I do not want that job. I think we're going to be picking up a lot of AI pieces for a while, 
which is going to simultaneously push us into the human side of things. You can't replace the human. You can't replace our mind. There's going to be parts of it that you can. The jobs will shift. I assume growth will happen instead of shrinkage. And yeah, it'll ultimately be positive as we all look inward into what it is that we bring intrinsic to the table as a unique weirdo human. I'm nervous to say anything because a year from now, I'll look back at it and say, oh, I thought that was funny when the robots weren't going to take over for a while and they're already taking over. I've been using ChatGPT for a few weeks here just to like help with anything that you would Google if you ask ChatGPT the same type of question. If you say, I need a golf file to compile fast and minify it and then change its name and then take the media queries and group them all together, it can do all of that until it can't. And then it always errors. And then you will paste the error code. And it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I meant to grab this package. And then it gives you a new goal file. And it's just been really interesting to test it out. But I think it's going to be brilliant at a few things like that in the short term, where it can help you do things that might have taken you a little longer. And that will save you time in order to create those more meaningful interactions with your users, if that is what you're looking for. But I think you can think of it right now as an assistant, something that might get you a little head start, but I don't know how much you can actually rely on it. Because even when it does spit out more code for me, it's always stuff I would rewrite, but it can give you the idea. Or if you're not sure how to convert from one templating language to another one, it's really good at that kind of stuff. All right. Just want to take a quick second right now to plug LogRocket. LogRocket offers session replay, issue tracking, and product analytics to help you quickly surface and solve impactful issues affecting your user experience. With LogRocket, you can find and solve issues faster, improve conversion and adoption, and spend more time building a better product, which is what we're trying to do at all times. Back into our questions. Uh, we got quite a few questions about accessibility. The first one comes from Bruno, who asks, how do we approach accessibility? I understand it's a very hard topic, but in this day and age, accessibility should be one of the core concerns while designing UI UX. Yet I feel way too often it is either ignored or brushed over by designers, developers, and managers. Surely there is a better way. Otherwise, we need to build one. Can we talk about why accessibility is so important, but designers often feel stuck like this when they're trying to implement it? So I empathize greatly with the fact that accessibility is hard. And even beyond that, it is difficult for the outcome of a product to be accessible without solid collaboration between design and engineering. And I have been in environments where that's possible and environments where that is less possible. <laughs> I feel a lot of ways about this, but one of the things that I would encourage is, first of all, break down any silos that you can and try to get that collaboration. If you are the designer, find a way to speak to your engineering team. If that's not possible, then spending some time learning about what it takes to make an interactive, accessible experience. On the surface layer, you're choosing type and spacing, like we talked about, choosing the colors, your design tools can get you part of the way there. For example, there's really no reason not to have poor color contrast when there's a million and one ways to check that. But when you learn a little bit more about how that experience comes together, you also can learn ways that you might need to alter structure of how you're designing something. I've seen very data-heavy 
dashboards, for example. And it's difficult as an engineer approaching those layouts when you're not sure what's actually a headline here? Like semantically, what is my mapping here? So as a designer, if you understand those differences yourself, not that you have to code a website, that's not what I'm saying, <laughs> but understanding that semantic underlying structure, the different heading tags, the difference between a link and a button, at least on a surface level. So you can communicate properly between yourself and engineering teams what those requirements are, the expectation for that user flow, but then be receptive and open to hearing why something may or may not work. And having that collaboration, you can fix a lot of accessibility in design. And it's not always easy to identify that until you really spend time understanding how that's going to translate to the page, what that means for the user experience, how a screen reader is going to approach that versus a user who uses voice control or uses their keyboard to navigate. So being exposed to more information about accessibility is going to help you bring those considerations into design. And that's always going to bring a best guess at <laughs> making an accessible product in the end. Sounds like part of the question here is also asked to get like stakeholder buy-in on why accessibility is important. I think that people sometimes look at accessibility as a way to make your website accessible to those only who use assisted devices. And that's not necessarily the only way to look at accessibility. If you're trying to convince, for instance, someone who has is paying for the budget of this project, then maybe you can tell them how building a site in an accessible way will make it also accessible to more people. And it will also make it more accessible to SEO. So their site will be more likely to be found. And also when you code your site using the correct semantics and markup, your site is not only something that is now consumed on one specific screen or device, all of the information on your site can now be pushed to all these other channels. You can ask your home assistant or Google Home Hub like a question. And if you're site isn't marked up in a correct way, then it might not be able to answer you at least as well as a site that was coded and well, design may not matter as much there. But when you work on the team, all of these pieces play a role in that. So I think if you can convince the stakeholders that more people will be able to use your site because of its accessibility, then that's a win for everybody. And the web is accessible by default. And it's just when us humans start getting in the way. That's when we tend to ruin things. So you talked about um, convincing the stakeholders to implement more accessibility and make it more accessible. Also got a question of just like, why do we think that so many of these stakeholders don't want to implement accessibility? I know like when I was working for a blog, accessibility didn't always rank the highest for our blog posts. And why do we think that we see this disconnect of everyone's like, we do need accessibility, but then when it comes time to implementing it, people don't want to do it. A lot of it is they don't see it. If they're not seeing it, they're not feeling it, then to them it doesn't exist. It's not in their mind. And like Stacy was saying, a really good first one is to be like, well, there's a really big other countries, CEO, stakeholder. Some of them are bigger than ours. If we make it accessible, multilingual, we'll get a lot more users, a lot more money will flow through this site. So you can foot in the door there. The strongest foot in the door I've ever seen to convince stakeholders is bring someone in or hire out for a five or 10 person UX study and have them watch at least one video. It's gut-wrenching. No one, unless they're a heartless 
person can watch someone use a site. So that's the other thing you can do here too, is you can ground it in moments because the moments make a lot of sense. Like one of them is, hey, we're a blog. You know why this needs to be screen reader accessible isn't just for X, Y, and Z. I'm in my car and I can't read it, but I can listen to it. So I'm gonna play this. I'm an abled person using a screen reader to listen to my blog posts. Like that's a cool moment. You're reaching far beyond just the narrow-minded use case you're trying to sell someone. You're like, this thing is bigger than it sounds. You know, and grounding them in moments, having them see someone. The best and coolest thing we had was a blind guy came in with a bow tie every day and he would use our UI and he was so nice and so cool. But as soon as you watched him struggle or whatever it was, you were like, oh, dang, I have work to do. And it was awesome. It grounded you and anyone else in the process into a purpose. Like I'm saying, if they don't see it, they don't feel it, it's not in their perspective. You have to get it in the perspective somehow. So there's accessibility beyond just disabilities. You have accessibility of content internationally, you have accessibility in all sorts of different ways. And so, yeah, the goal is to make money from people. And I think there's a lot of unfortunate perspectives that like, if you're not some abled iPhone holder, that you don't have money. And those people are going to fail in their own ways in their business because of this lack of perspective. And it's hard to convince them otherwise. It's a bummer scenario we're in that we always have to fight for this because it seems so obvious. But I think everyone's taking shortcuts. They want to use AI to generate their site. They want to take a pill to get rid of something, right? And the nuance and the intimacies and the intricacies of everything that make UX what it is, is not a pill solution. These are things where you have to sit down person by person, scenario by scenario, and make it work out. And so, yeah, it's a human-centric practice. If you bring the humans in that you want to have those good moments and show them that they're having bad moments, it can be really powerful. You mentioned how sitting people down and like having these moments of experiencing how it's not accessible. We did get a question from Mitchell that asked, do you have any tools that you use specifically to evaluate accessibility? Yeah, I've been learning different screen readers for the past few years. I try to learn one new hotkey a week, usually on my macOS voiceover or on my Android phone. So I try to use the ones that are built in that aren't paid because I feel like those are the most accessible (laughs) that you didn't have to pay a hundred bucks a year or whatever to get them. So learning and using the tools will open your mind up in lots of really cool ways. You actually find out there's some power tools in these. These things are not limited. Okay, screen readers are not some dinky, dorky thing that can barely use your site. They are insanely strong. And the people that know how to work them will make you look slow with your mouse. Go learn screen readers. Go learn them on Windows. And then you can use tools to help you step into the shoes of these other people. So you've got dev tools that will emulate various deficiencies, like whether it's colorblindness. You have dev tools that can emulate different capabilities of a device, different capabilities of preferences, and you can mix and match these things and really step into the shoes of a various types of users. Switch computers. If you want to get into UX, you can't read about a lot of this stuff. You really got to sit down and feel it. This is user experience and the tangibility and the things that you'll learn from getting your hands on the actual tools they're going to use to do it. And I also make one called VizBug. It has an accessibility inspection tool. And it's a Chrome extension. You launch the Chrome extension, go to the accessibility, and everything you hover on will tell you the color contrast. It'll tell you if there's ARIA labels. It'll tell you as much accessibility information as it can. And it's really nice for a code review. There's also automation tools like AI can crawl your site, give it tests. They'll catch some of it. But honestly, the subjective, the most meaningful parts of it, it will probably miss. You need to try these tools by hand. Go learn screen readers. I'll just give you three quick ones <laughs> just to get you started. If you don't have anything right now, and these are tools in browser, 
So in your DevTools, some of the browsers have access to the accessibility tree. So that helps you discover what is an element going to be named or interpreted as both the role. So is it a button? And then what is it going to be called? Because that can come from different sources and it might not be expected. And then in Chromium browsers, you have the Wave extension, the Accessibility Insights extension, and the Axe extension. Those are all free or have free components to them. They're in the category Adam described as kind of AI, but they're going to catch your low-hanging fruit. They're going to catch the items that are routinely the top errors reported for accessibility year over year on the top million websites, which actually uses the WAVE accessibility checker. So it's going to get you that foundation. You can also incorporate a version of Axe into your pipelines if that's the thing your team has set up. And so getting familiar with those, but also understanding that as Adam said, they're not going to catch everything. And the other critical thing is they're only going to catch things in the current state of your page. So if you have a single page application and you have modals and panels and whatever else coming in and out, you'll have to run it for those different views. It's not going to be aware of those workflows. So just something to keep in mind. If you do choose to use those tools, it's only going to capture the state of your page at that time. But it's a good place to start and will at least help you make steps in the right direction. I use a lot of tools, but like Adam said, I think the most meaningful change is understanding the context around things. So if, if you're approaching this as a designer looking to learn more about accessibility, and Stephanie mentioned that there's no excuse, I think, to have poor color contrast at this point. I believe that was the quote, and I, I agree. There's tons of color contrast checkers built into these design tools nowadays. I love the Mac app contrast. It's a little color checker in your top toolbar so that you don't have to be in one specific application to use it. You can kind of test it anywhere. I also have used, I don't know if I say co-ally or co-a11y. It gives you a huge report on the web page and it explains why each thing is flagged. But with a lot of these automatic testing tools, you're going to get a lot of like false positives or they'll make sure to flag every image that doesn't have an alt tag, even if you wanted it to not have an alt tag because it was a decorative image, for instance. I think the more interesting solutions are like, what kind of labels do you want on your buttons that are succinct, but will communicate to a screen reader clearly what they are going to see? So instead of in your design showing like read more everywhere, which in the code, we can also extend that title, which won't be shown. But like those little ways and how you label things will really matter to someone maybe using a screen reader. All right. So we have one more question and they asked, I'm curious to know what industry leaders think about the future of UX UI design. What emerging trends and technologies should we be keeping an eye on and how can we stay ahead of the curve? I predict or possibly also hope for <laughs> a bigger focus on user preferences. So an earlier question asked about AI to influence user experiences, but I think just using the tools we already have available or whether it's AI or other methods, getting smarter about being aware of user preferences to ensure they can access content and complete different jobs that they need to do more successfully. 
This is uh, somewhat of a maybe selfish answer, but I've had the privilege of watching Miriam Suzanne at Audubon do a lot of stuff with the CSS Working Group and all of the cool new CSS techniques that are landing in browsers. They're landing so rapidly. So if I were to give designers advice, and I haven't seen a lot of this mentioned, but there's so many different types of layouts we can do now with Grid, and we're introducing layers and scope and all these amazing CSS tools that we never used to have access to. So I think as designers, if you don't code yourselves, just to be aware of some of these things that are becoming available and thinking about how you can use these more modern CSS techniques within your designs. It's very exciting because we have never been able to do that. It's always like, okay, you set up your design canvas at 1024 back in the day, and that was what you're stuck with. And then responsive design came out and everything just stacks. But now we have like amazing abilities to like place things in certain areas. And it doesn't always have to just stack on top of each other, and then stack next to each other. So what can you do as a designer to make that jump, thinking through this in a much different way than we used to do it five, 10 years ago? So I would look more into that if I were you. I remember the first time I saw my grandpa get in a car and he sat down and the chair went, remembered where he was, where he likes his leg room to be. That was my first time I ever saw an interface adapt to the human that used it. And like Stephanie's saying, this is our future. Our future is not an ideal single design comp that stacks. The ideal future here is an interface that progressively adds features based on multiple factors, including your preferences. I prefer dark theme during the night, but not during the day. Don't blind me at night with your light theme. There's like accessibility and purchase it. There's like influences here beyond just like seeming cool, like having two themes. Like it's cool to have light and dark. It's actually, it is cool. <laughs> I agree. But it's also it has applications far beyond that. Like one of the ones that I really like is reduced motion. I love making reduced motion animations, mostly because there's like a fun layering technique that can happen. And it's just like a cool little challenge. But then as you study what reduced motions effects are, just like a curb cut. So hopefully you all know what a curb cut is in the ground. We make it so that wheelchairs can go up and down off a curb. But who else uses it? Skateboarders, me, tons of other people use it for something you didn't know. Reduced motion has this case. There's schools that turn reduced motion on for every device because it's distracting to the children. So now you've made a site that's not reduced motion because you don't want people to vomit. You've made reduced motion because you don't care why, you're just respectful. And so you're being respectful to preference. You're upgrading experiences based on capabilities. And I, and I like this. This is where you've got one design and an N number of permutation. I mean, N like you don't know the numbers. You don't know how the text is going to fall in that viewport at that user's phone. You don't know what internet connection speed they have. But these are all things that, yeah, the CSS working group, the web working group, we can build experiences that can acknowledge a preference, adapt to it, and continue adapting in phenomenal and brand new ways. The future is a UI that you sit down and it immediately shrinks and adjusts to you. Yeah, it's hard to top that. But yeah, I feel like the theme for me is just like the tooling is getting better at all layers of the stack. There's cool stuff coming down that make it easier for engineers and designers alike to just like do things that are accessible, make sites adaptable. Responsiveness was the first wave of that, but I feel like now we're really coming into that space of interfaces that are reactive to the user. And I think it'll be cool to watch. It's hard to like point out specifics because stuff changes so fast. But again, if you're the person that cares about that kind of thing, just keep you guys in the working groups, keep your ear to the ground, 
Google around, watch your favorite content creators. They'll be talking about it. I, as a lay person, very much enjoyed this conversation because I just started getting into figuring out the accessibility options I have. So it's awesome to hear you guys talking about it and all the options that we have. And hopefully we continue to get better user experiences and design so people like me can enjoy being on the internet more. So I just want to thank you all again for joining us. Before we head out, I just want to ask each of you where people can find you, what you want to plug? You probably won't find me in many places. I have a Twitter presence, but I don't use it hardly at all anymore. If you like gymnastics, I'm on Instagram at K. And yeah, check out Oddbird if you're interested. And we are building a color contrast checker for the more modern CSS color spaces. So if you're interested in using something other than just RGB or HSL, if you want to use any of the OKLab or LCH types of colors, check that out once we launch it, which will be very soon. I am more on Mastodon these days as well. I'm still 5T3PH, but you have to hunt that address down. And I guess you can get to whatever else I have going on. ModernCSS.dev would be the hub you can jump from. <laughs> At my indie social network, nerdy.dev, where I post now where I can own it and you know no one can take it away if they decide to run it into the ground. And on top of that, definitely shout out to Oddbird and Stephanie. Both of those are resources with massive amounts of design and CSS and UI information for you. Well, thank you all again. This has been really great, very enlightening. And to everyone listening, if you have any specific questions about web development, you can message me, Emily, on Twitter at Emily K. Kettner. We're going to link all of these links in the show notes. And if you get in touch with me, we might feature your question on a future mailbag episode or panel episode. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket, and have a great day.